for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Welcome, listeners, to Black Clock Audio Tales. It's October, and let's get spookier than last month. So yeah, we're going to be doing ghost stories, starting with Lucky's Grove, then Nightwire, Man's Size in Marble, A Neighbor's Landmark, Morella, Rats, The Death of Halpin Frazier, The Resurrectionist, and the residence at Whitmeister. So that's uh, the the stories we're going to have coming up for the next couple of days there. And then after that, we're going to have another intro here. And we're going to have a bunch of other collection of ghost stories and spooky stories, mostly ghost stories. And maybe we'll have some uh, people talking about ghost stories for the show. Thank you again so much, and if you want to know how to help the show, go to pgttcm.com and click on Info. There's also a Shop button, and you can see where the audiobooks are and where the bits and pieces for our monthly Cthulhu Mythos show is. If you want to help the show grow, want more Cthulhu Mythos episodes, let us know. Let us know what's going on. If you're having problems with the RSS feed, let us know. Let us know what's going on, and thank you so much, everyone. All right, let's have some spooky stories read to you by Morgan Scorpion. This episode's brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Check them out. Dino Sound Slippers, cool cult film shirts that you can wear. Keep your feet warm. Keep your torso looking cool. Winter's coming. Embrace slippers. Something like that. Let's go. Auto Cath Auto. Meth Autu Mono Ides Aeon Itself by itself solely one everlasting and single Plato Symposium With a feeling of deep yet most singular affection I regarded my friend Morella. Thrown by accident into her society many years ago, my soul from our first meeting burned with fires it had never before known. But the fires were not of Eros, and bitter and tormenting to my spirit was the gradual conviction that I could in no manner define their unusual meaning, or regulate their vague intensity. Yet we met, and fate bound us together at the altar, and I never spoke of passion, nor thought of love. She, however, shunned society, and attaching herself to me alone, 
rendered me happy. It is a happiness to wonder. It is a happiness to wonder. It is a happiness to dream. Morella's erudition was profound. As I hope to live, her talents were of no common order. Her powers of mind were gigantic. I felt this, and in many matters became her pupil. I soon, however, found that, perhaps on account of her Presburg education, she placed before me a number of those mystical writings which are usually considered the mere dross of the early German literature. These, for what reason I could not imagine, were her favourite and constant study, and that in the process of time they became my own should be attributed to the simple but effectual influence of habit and example. In all this, if I err not, my reason had little to do. My convictions, or I forget myself, were in no manner acted upon by the ideal, nor was any tincture of the mysticism which I read to be discovered, unless I am greatly mistaken, either in my deeds or in my thoughts. Persuaded of this, I abandoned myself implicitly to the guidance of my wife, and entered with an unflinching heart into the intricacies of her studies. And then, then, when poring over forbidden pages, I felt a forbidden spirit enkindling within me. Morella would place her cold hand upon my own, and rake up from the ashes of a dead philosophy some low, singular words, whose strange meaning burned themselves in upon my memory. And then, hour after hour, would I linger by her side, and dwell upon the music of her voice, until at length its melody was tainted with terror, and there fell a shadow upon my soul, and I grew pale and shuddered inwardly at those two unearthly tones. And thus joy suddenly faded into horror, and the most beautiful became the most hideous, as Hinnon became Gehenna. It is unnecessary to state the exact character of those disquisitions which, growing out of the volumes I have mentioned, formed for so long a time almost the sole conversation of Morella and myself. By the learned, in what might be termed theological morality, they will be readily conceived, and by the unlearned they would, at all events, be little understood. The wild pantheism of Fichte, the modified Palaganesia of the Pythagoreans, and above all, the doctrines of identity as urged by Schelling, were generally the points of discussion presenting the most of beauty to the imaginative Morella. That identity which is termed personal, Mr. Locke, I think, truly defines to consist in the sameness of rational being. And since by person we understand an intelligent essence having reason, and since there is a consciousness which always accompanies thinking, it is this which makes us all to be that which we call ourselves, thereby distinguishing us from other beings that think, and giving us our personal identity. But the principium individuationis, the notion of that identity which at death is or is not lost for ever, was to me, at all times, a consideration of intense interest, not more from the perplexing and exciting nature of its consequences than from the marked and agitated manner in which Morella mentioned them. But, indeed, the time had now arrived when the mystery of my wife's manner 
oppressed me as a spell. I could no longer bear the touch of her wan fingers, nor the low tone of her musical language, nor the luster of her melancholy eyes. And she knew all this, but did not upbraid. She seemed conscious of my weakness or my folly, and smiling, called it fate. She seemed also conscious of a cause, to me unknown, for the gradual alienation of my regard. But she gave me no hint or token of its nature. Yet was she woman, and pined away daily. In time the crimson spot settled steadily upon the cheek, and the blue veins upon the pale forehead became prominent, and one instant my nature melted into pity. But in the next... I met the glance of her meaning eyes, and then my soul sickened, and became giddy with the giddiness of one who gazes downward into some dreary and unfathomable abyss. Shall I then say that I longed with an earnest and consuming desire for the moment of Morella's decease? I did. But the fragile spirit clung to its tenement of clay for many days, for many weeks and irksome months, until my tortured nerves obtained the mastery over my mind, and I grew furious through delay, and, and, with the heart of a fiend, cursed the days and the hours and the bitter moments which seemed to lengthen and lengthen as her gentle life declined, like shadows in the dying of the day. But one autumnal evening, when the winds lay still in heaven, Morella called me to her bedside. There was a dim mist over all the earth, and a warm glow upon the waters, and, amid the rich October leaves of the forest, a rainbow from the firmament had surely fallen. It is a day of days, she said as I approached, a day of all days, either to live or die. It is a fair day for the sons of earth and life. Ah! more fair for the daughters of heaven and death. I kissed her forehead, and she continued, I am dying, yet shall I live. Morella! The days have never been when thou couldst love me, but her whom in life thou didst abhor, in death thou shalt adore. Morella! I repeat, I am dying, but within me is a pledge of that affection, ah, how little, which thou didst feel for me, Morella. And when my spirit departs, shall the child live, thy child and mine, Morella's. But thy days shall be days of sorrow, that sorrow which is the most lasting of impressions as the cypress is the most enduring of trees. For the hours of thy happiness are over, and joy is not gathered twice in a life, as the roses of Pistum twice in a year. Thou shalt no longer, then, play the Teian with time, but being ignorant of the myrtle and the vine, thou shalt bear about with thee thy shroud on the earth as do the Muslimin at Mecca. Morella, I cried, Morella, how knowest thou this? But she turned away her face upon the pillow, and a slight tremor coming over her limbs, she thus died, 
and I heard her voice no more. Yet, as she had foretold, her child, to which in dying she had given birth, which breathed not until the mother breathed no more, her child, a daughter, lived. And she grew strangely in stature and intellect, and was the perfect resemblance of her who had departed. And I loved her with a love more fervent than I had believed it possible to feel for any denizen of earth. But ere long, the heaven of this pure affection became darkened, and gloom, and horror, and grief swept over it in clouds. I said the child grew strangely in stature and intelligence. Strange, indeed, was her rapid increase in bodily size, but terrible, oh, terrible, were the tumultuous thoughts which crowded upon me while watching the development of her mental being. Could it be otherwise, when I daily discovered in the conceptions of the child the adult powers and faculties of the woman, when the lessons of experience fell from the lips of infancy, and when the wisdom or the passions of maturity I found hourly gleaming from its full and speculative eye. When I say, all this became evident to my appalled senses, when I could no longer hide it from my soul, nor throw it off from those perceptions which trembled to receive it. Is it to be wondered at that suspicions of a nature fearful and exciting crept in upon my spirit, or that my thoughts fell back aghast upon the wild tales and thrilling theories of the entombed Morella? I snatched from the scrutiny of the world a being whom destiny compelled me to adore, and in the rigorous seclusion of my home watched with an agonizing anxiety over all which concerned the beloved. And as years rolled away, and I gazed day after day upon her holy and mild and eloquent face, and pored over her maturing form, day after day did I discover new points of resemblance in the child to her mother, the melancholy and the dead. And hourly grew darker these shadows of similitude, and more full, and more definite, and more perplexing, and more hideously terrible in their aspect. For that her smile was like her mother's, I could bear. But then I shuddered at its too perfect identity. That her eyes were like Morella's, I could endure. But then they too often looked down into the depths of my soul with Morella's own intense and bewildering meaning and in the contour of the high forehead, and in the ringlets of the silken hair, and in the wan fingers which buried themselves therein, and in the sad musical tones of her speech, and above all, oh, above all, in the phrases and expressions of the dead on the lips of the loved and the living. I found food for consuming thought and horror, for a worm that would not die. Thus passed away two lustra of her life, and as yet, my daughter remained nameless upon the earth. My child and my love were the designations usually prompted by a father's affection, and the rigid seclusion of her days precluded all other intercourse. Morella's name died with her at her death. Of the mother I had never spoken to the daughter. It was impossible to speak. Indeed, during the brief period of her existence, the latter had received no impressions from the outward world, save such as might have been afforded by the narrow limits of her privacy. But at length the ceremony of baptism presented to my mind, in its unnerved and agitated condition, 
are present deliverance from the terrors of my destiny. And at the baptismal font I hesitated for a name. And many titles of the wise and beautiful, of old and modern times, of my own and foreign lands, came thronging to my lips, with many fair titles of the gentle and the happy and the good. What prompted me then to disturb the memory of the buried dead? What demon urged me to breathe that sound which in its very recollection was wont to make ebb the purple blood in torrents from the temples to the heart? What fiend spoke from the recesses of my soul when, amid those dim aisles and in the silence of the night, I whispered within the ears of the holy man the syllables, Morella? What more than fiend convulsed the features of my child, and overspread them with hues of death, as startling as that scarcely audible sound, she turned her glassy eyes from the earth to the heaven, and falling prostrate on the black slabs of our ancestral vault, responded, I am here. Distinct, coldly, calmly distinct, fell those few simple sounds within my ear, and thence like molten lead rolled hissingly into my brain. Years, years may pass away, but the memory of that epoch, never. Nor was I indeed ignorant of the flowers and the vine, but the hemlock and the cypress overshadowed me night and day, and I kept no reckoning of time or place, and the stars of my fate faded from heaven, and therefore the earth grew dark, and its figures passed by me, like flitting shadows, and among them all I beheld only Morella. The winds of the firmament breathed but one sound within my ears, and the ripples upon the sea murmured evermore, Morella. But she died, and with my own hands I bore her to the tomb, and I laughed with a long and bitter laugh as I found no traces of the first in the charnel where I laid the second. Morella. And if you were to walk through the bedrooms now, you'd see the ragged, mouldy bedclothes a-heaving and a-heaving like seas. And a-heaving and a-heaving with what, he says? Why, with the rats under em. But was it with the rats? I ask, because in another case it was not. I cannot put a date to the story, but I was young when I heard it, and the teller was old. It is an ill-proportioned tale. But that is my fault, not his. It happened in Suffolk, near the coast, in a place where the road makes a sudden dip and then a sudden rise. As you go northward, at the top of that rise, stands a house on the left of the road. It is a tall, red-brick house, narrow for its height. Perhaps it was built about 1770. The top of the front has a low triangular pediment with a round window in the centre. Behind it are the stables and offices, and such garden as it has is behind them. Scraggy Scotch firs are near it. An expanse of gorse-covered land stretches away from it. It commands a view of the distant sea from the upper windows of the front. A sign on a post stands before the door, or did so stand, for though it was an inn of repute once, I believe it is no longer. To this inn came my acquaintance, Mr. Thompson, when he was a young man, on a fine spring day, coming from the University of Cambridge, and desirous of solitude in tolerable quarters and time for reading. These he found, 
for the landlord and his wife had been in service and could make a visitor comfortable, and there was no one else staying in the inn. He had a large room on the first floor, commanding the road and the view, and if it faced east, why, that could not be helped. The house was well built and warm. He spent very tranquil and uneventful days, work all the morning, an afternoon perambulation of the country round, a little conversation with country company or the people of the inn in the evening over the then fashionable drink of brandy and water, a little more reading and writing, and bed. And he would have been content that this should continue for the full month he had at disposal, so well was his work progressing, and so fine was the April of that year, which I have reason to believe was that which Orlando Whistlecraft chronicles in his weather record of as the charming year. One of his walks took him along the northern road, which stands high and traverses a wide common called a heath. On the bright afternoon when he first chose this direction, his eye caught a white object some hundreds of yards to the left of the road, and he felt it necessary to make sure what this might be. It was not long before he was standing by it, and found himself looking at a square block of white stone, fashioned somewhat like the base of a pillar, with a square hole in the upper surface. Just such another you may see at this day on Thetford Heath. After taking stock of it, he contemplated for a few minutes. The view, which offered a church tower or two, some red roofs of cottages and windows winking in the sun, and the expanse of sea, also with an occasional wink and gleam upon it, and so pursued his way. In the desultory evening talk in the bar, he asked why the white stone was there on the common. "'A old-fashioned thing, that is,' said the landlord, Mr. Betts. "'We was none of us alive when that was put there.' "'That's right,' said another. "'It stands pretty high,' said Mr. Thompson. "'I dare say a sea-mark was on it some time back.' "'Ah, yes,' Mr. Betts agreed. "'I have heard they could see it from the boats.' "'But whatever there was, it's fell to bits this long time.' "'Good job, too,' said a third. "'Twarn't a lucky mark, by what the old men used to say. "'Not lucky for the fishing, I mean to say.' "'Why ever not?' said Thompson. "'Well, I never see it myself,' was the answer. "'But they had some funny ideas. "'What I mean, peculiar, them old chaps. "'And I shouldn't wonder but what they made away with it themselves.' It was impossible to get anything clearer than this. The company, never very voluble, fell silent, and when next someone spoke it was of village affairs and crops. Mr. Betts was the speaker. Not every day did Thompson consult his health by taking a country walk. One very fine afternoon found him busily writing at three o'clock. Then he stretched himself and rose, and walked out of his room into the passage. Facing him was another room, then the stairhead, then two more rooms, one looking out to the back, the other to the south. At the south end of the passage was a window, to which he went, considering with himself that it was rather a shame to waste such a fine afternoon. However, work was paramount just at the moment. He thought he would just take five minutes off and go back to it, and those five minutes he would employ the Betzes could not possibly object, to looking at the other rooms in the passage, which he had never seen. 
Nobody at all, it seemed, was indoors. Probably, as it was market day, they were all gone to the town, except perhaps a maid in the bar. Very still the house was, and the sun shone really hot. Early flies buzzed in the window panes. So he explored. The room facing his own was undistinguished, except for an old print of Bury St. Edmund's. The two next him on his side of the passage were gay and clean, with one window apiece, whereas his had two. Remained the southwest room, opposite to the last which he had entered. This was locked, but Thompson was in a mood of quite indefensible curiosity, and feeling confident that there could be no damaging secrets in a place so easily got at, he proceeded to fetch the key of his own room, and when that did not answer, to collect the keys of the other three. One of them fitted, and he opened the door. The room had two windows looking south and west, so it was as bright and the sun as hot upon it as could be. Here there was no carpet, but bare boards, no pictures, no washing-stand, only a bed in the farther corner. An iron bed, with mattress and bolster, covered with a bluish check counterpane. As featureless a room as you can well imagine. And yet there was something that made Thompson close the door very quickly, and yet quietly behind him, and lean against the window-sill in the passage, actually quivering all over. It was this, that under the counterpane someone lay, and not only lay, but stirred. That it was some one, and not some thing, was certain, because the shape of a head was unmistakable on the bolster. And yet it was all covered, and no one lies with covered head but a dead person. And this was not dead, not truly dead, for it heaved and shivered. If he had seen these things in dusk or by the light of a flickering candle, Thompson could have comforted himself and talked of fancy. On this bright day that was impossible. What was to be done? First, lock the door at all costs. Very gingerly he approached it, and bending down listened, holding his breath. Perhaps there might be a sound of heavy breathing, and a prosaic explanation. There was absolute silence. But as, with a rather tremulous hand, he put the key into its hole and turned it, it rattled, and on the instant a stumbling, padding tread was heard coming towards the door. Thompson fled like a rabbit to his room and locked himself in. Futile enough, he knew it was. Would doors and locks be any obstacle to what he suspected? But it was all he could think of at the moment. And in fact... Nothing happened. Only there was a time of acute suspense, followed by a misery of doubt as to what to do. The impulse, of course, was to slip away as soon as possible from a house which contained such an inmate. But only the day before he had said he should be staying for at least a week more. And how, if he changed plans, could he avoid the suspicion of having pried into places where he certainly had no business? Moreover, Either the Betzes knew all about the inmate, and yet did not leave the house, or knew nothing, which equally meant that there was nothing to be afraid of, or knew just enough to make them shut up the room, but not enough to weigh on their spirits. In any of these cases, it seemed that not much was to be feared. 
and certainly so far he had had no sort of ugly experience. On the whole, the line of least resistance was to stay. Well, he stayed out his week. Nothing took him past that door, and, often as he would pause in a quiet hour of the day or night in the passage and listen, and listen, no sound whatever issued from that direction. You might have thought that Thompson would have made some attempt at ferreting out stories connected with the inn. Hardly, perhaps, from Betts, but from the parson of the parish, or old people in the village. But no. The reticence which commonly falls on people who have had strange experiences, and believe in them, was upon him. Nevertheless, as the end of his stay drew near, his yearning after some kind of explanation grew more and more acute. On his solitary walks he persisted in planning out some way, the least obtrusive, of getting another daylight glimpse into that room, and eventually arrived at this scheme. He would leave by an afternoon train, about four o'clock. When his fly was waiting, and his luggage on it, he would make one last expedition upstairs to look round his own room, and see if anything was left unpacked, and then, with that key, which he had contrived to oil, as if that made any difference, the door should once more be opened, for a moment, and shut. So it worked out. The bill was paid, the consequent small talk gone through, while the fly was loaded. Pleasant part of the country, been very comfortable, thanks to you and Mrs. Betts. Hope to come back some time, on one side. On the other, very glad you found satisfaction, sir. Done our best, always glad to have your good word. Very much favoured we've been with the weather, to be sure. Then, I'll just take a look upstairs in case I've left a book or something out. No, don't trouble, I'll be back in a minute. And as noiselessly as possible he stole to the door and opened it. The shattering of the illusion. He almost laughed aloud. Propped, or you might say sitting, on the edge of the bed, was nothing in the round world but a scarecrow. A scarecrow out of the garden, of course, dumped into the deserted room. Yes, but here amusement ceased. Have scarecrows bare bony feet? Do their heads loll onto their shoulders? Have they iron collars and links of chain about their necks? Can they get up and move, if never so stiffly, across a floor, with wagging head and arms close at their sides? And shiver. The slam of the door, the dash to the stairhead, the leap downstairs, were followed by a faint. Awaking, Thompson saw Betts standing over him with the brandy bottle and a very reproachful face. You shouldn't have done so, sir. Really, you shouldn't. It ain't a kind way to act by persons as done the best they could for you. Thompson heard words of this kind, but what he said in reply he did not know. Mr. Betts, and perhaps even more Mrs. Betts, found it hard to accept his apologies and his assurances that he would say no word that could damage the good name of the house. However, they were accepted. Since the train could not now be caught, it was arranged that Thompson should be driven to the town to sleep there. Before he went, the Betzes told him what little they knew. They says he was landlord here a long time back, and was in with the highwaymen that had their beat about the east. That's how he came by his end. 
Ung in chains, they say, up where you see that stone where the gallows stood in. Yes, the fishermen made away with that, I believe, because they see it out at sea, and it kept the fish off, according to their idea. Yes, we added the account from the people that had the house before we come. You keep that loom shut up, they says, but don't move the bed out, and you'll find there won't be no trouble. And no more there has been. Not once he haven't come out into the house, though what he may do now there ain't no saying. Anyway, you're the first I know on that's seen him since we've been here. I never set eyes on him myself, nor don't one. And ever since we've made the servants' rooms in the stabling, we ain't had no difficulty that way. Only I do hope, sir, as you'll keep a close tongue, considering how an house do get talked about. With more to this effect. The promise of silence was kept for many years. The occasion of my hearing the story at last was this, that when Mr. Thompson came to stay with my father it fell to me to show him to his room, and instead of letting me open the door for him, he stepped forward and threw it open himself, and then for some moments stood in the doorway holding up his candle and looking narrowly into the interior. Then he seemed to recollect himself and said, I beg your pardon. Very absurd, but I can't help doing that, for a particular reason. What that reason was, I heard some days afterwards, and you have heard it now. Sweet dreams.